is, it's an interesting title, they often are, because the inference is, isn't it, that God has played a role in the activities of uh, history, and I suppose uh, what that leaves a speaker like myself with is a bit of a challenge when you look at a title like that, you think, well, what part of scripture do I turn to to uh, demonstrate this? Because uh, we may be familiar with the Bible to varying degrees, but the Bible, suffice to say, there are a lot of prophecies in the Bible, and they cover a lot of nations and a lot of empires. So, you know, where, where, do, you, where do you go with a, a prophecy like this or a title like this? And what I thought was we would go, as you may have guessed from the, the reading, we'll go with the book of Daniel because my read of that book is that it is fairly broad reaching in terms of its coverage. It covers multiple empires and some would argue it forms almost a foundational prophecy or a backbone prophecy to scripture which leads into none other than the book of Revelation. We are not going to deal with the book of Revelation uh, today other than I've got a picture there of uh, that is uh, Alaric, one of the Gothic invaders who uh, played a key role in knocking off the Western Roman Empire which does feature in the book of Revelation and, and I put it up there just to make the point that yes we are going to focus on Daniel but Daniel feeds into another very large, very complex prophecy, which is the book of Revelation, and it covers lots of interesting historic events. Um, so, yeah, if you get a handle on Daniel, it sets you up for success in terms of this other magnificent prophecy, which is Revelation, and it covers things like that. Okay, but we're not going to deal with, uh, with Revelation other than to make that point. Now, in terms of the, I suppose, the value of doing what we're looking to do tonight, which is looking at Bible prophecy, I just want to make an initial point as to, I suppose, the why, or like, why, why would we look at prophecy? And really, um, I'm going to put up a quote from the book of Isaiah here, because I think it, it's a little bit cut off, but I think you get the idea. Um, basically, the, there is a purpose to prophecy in Scripture. The author of the Bible, that God has inspired the whole book, we would suggest gives you that reason and it is essentially God is, I think of it this way, God is throwing down the gauntlet to any world, philosophy, religion, whatever the case may be and it's essentially saying if you can predict the future then, then maybe there's some supernatural power involved, maybe that warrants listening to. Okay, So he's essentially saying that the fingerprint of his supernatural power is the ability to predict the future. So. There, are, there is actually quite a lot of quotes in the Bible that make that point. Isaiah 46 verse 9, as an example, remember the form of things of old, for I am God, there is none else. I am God, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times of things that are not yet done, saying my counsel will stand. Okay, So God is essentially, this is how I read this, and it's not the only uh, quote that in the Bible that says this general point, is I will throw down the gauntlet, and if you can predict the future... Maybe I will listen to you. Maybe there is, there is divine inspiration involved. And, and what is it inferring? It is inferring that the Bible is an inspired book. The Bible claims to predict the future. We're going to look at just one prophecy along those lines uh, this evening. Um, and the suggestion, of course, is there is none else. Nobody, no religion, no philosophy, no book will successfully lay claim to accurately predicting the future ahead of time apart from the Bible, which is a big claim, okay? And that's what we want to put to the test tonight. Now, having said that, I would suggest to you that the book of Daniel is, this is a matter of my opinion, it is not the easiest, it's not the hardest either, but it's not the easiest prophecy to prove the inspiration of Scripture. In my opinion, the easiest way to prove the inspiration of Scripture 
it is through prophecy, but it is through Israel, right? Because you've got prophecies that were fulfilled in under a century from today, very specific detailed prophecies. You could never even remotely suggest they were written after the fact. But um, I thought, look, our topic tonight is world history, so we want to look at a prophecy that's a little bit broader than you know, some of those prophecies that were fulfilled in, um, in the 20th century, but they are excellent things to look at in a, on a different occasion. Okay. So in terms of the... Just, I just want to give a taste of the book of Daniel. So this, this is a visual representation of what we just read, uh, as well as chapter 7 of Daniel, which is... I would call it a sister chapter to Daniel chapter 2 in as much as it takes what is presented in Daniel chapter 2 and it supplements it with essentially different details. Daniel chapter 2 is, is an image, it's a statue. You get, you, you've got a presentation of essentially four empires. I'm going to, a bit of a spoiler alert, I'm going to tell you the answer before we get there. Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, okay, right through to actually modern day uh, in terms of the European manifestation of that. That is what the image of Daniel represents. In the book of, um, in the chapter seven, rather of Daniel, you then have these beasts that essentially replicate those prophecies, but they give different details. Okay, so more clues as to what to look for, because prophecies sometimes are a case of looking at what the prophet said, and then trying to interpret as world events unfold or as they have unfolded in, in the past tense. It, certainly, in this case, that's that's true for us. Uh, trying to look at them, trying to pick out the clues and figure out, well, who, who was this? Is this accurate? Uh, or is this, just, uh, is this just made up? Is someone just speculating, trying to, trying to convince us that we've got an inspired book when we don't? Okay. And obviously, our suggestion here is that, yes, the, the book of Daniel is inspired. The whole Bible is inspired. But what we want to do tonight is try and demonstrate that with a level of, um, of evidence. Okay. So we will come back to that, but that's just that's the roadmap. Uh, and in a way, it is the whole... Uh, Prophecy of particularly Daniel 2, supplemented by 7, chapter 7, it is an archetypical prophecy. It is a roadmap. It is, it is arguably the backbone of prophecy in the Bible. It spans history from, as you can see there, you know, you're half a millennium or so before Christ, right through to today and beyond uh, to a degree. Okay? So it, it is a very far-reaching prophecy and it spans arguably the four, apart from maybe the Egyptian, you know, four of the most major empires in the history of mankind. Okay, very far-reaching prophecy. So that's what we're going to look at. But before we do, so really what I want to do is present to you uh, the details of what Daniel says, the clues as I call them, and then we're just going to look at some history and see what actually happened. And, and do we see his predictions uh, on reflection, because we're, we're suggesting these are mostly fulfilled. Was it accurate? Were, is the detail sound? And if it is, uh, and if someone actually predicted the future accurately, well, then... It warrants our attention to look at that book, look at the broader contents of the Bible, perhaps, because we've now got credibility proven. Okay, and that's why we look at prophecy. We look at prophecy because, unlike I think, don't know if you noticed on the previous slide, but unlike that, tarot. Um, uh, I hope I'm not offending anyone who's into tarot here. But my, in my opinion, tarot is a little bit of guesswork and speculation, and it, I haven't seen any rock-solid evidence that tarot is legitimate. Okay. The Bible I have, and that's what I'm looking to share with you tonight. Okay, so before we talk about Daniel proper, though, I just want to talk about an issue, right? Who knows what that's, that is in that, that picture? Anyone know what that, that is? Pyrite? It is fool's gold, okay? So you have an issue with the book of Daniel, and you, and you have it with 
various books of the, of the Bible to varying degrees, which is that critics come out of the woodwork and they, especially with the book of Daniel, because it is so accurate, okay? It is a very accurate prophecy. And Bible critics don't like that because it's too accurate. Um, it, it's very precise. We'll see that later on. But where does that lead the critics? Well, it leads the critics to the conclusion that it must have been written ex post facto, which is Latin for essentially after the fact, okay? Which, what else can they do? <laughs> if you don't want to believe in the Bible, if you don't want to believe in the inspiration of the book of Daniel, you need to push the dating right back till, you know, after the Greeks, uh, Alexander the Great's done things because the details around what Alexander does, the, the Greek Empire, the Persian Empire, it's just too accurate, okay? So they push the date out. So if you go... So we're going to deal, and I want to deal with this issue. I want to deal with the dating of Daniel because I think it's quite important and interesting. I haven't seen it dealt with that much. And it actually, I find, really builds your conviction because you look at how these critics try to pick this book apart and you can probably imagine where I'm heading. I don't think they do a very good job when you actually look at the detail, but you have to look at the detail. So that's what we're going to do. I want to look at this ex post facto theory before we jump to, yes, it was an accurate prophecy. Because what's the point if there's people out there who say this? So this is Wikipedia, right? Wikipedia tends to reflect, I'm generalising, but you know, generally the mainstream views. Uh, and according to Wikipedia, so if you, if you didn't know anything and you were just sort of curious about the book of Daniel, maybe a little bit curious about the Daniel, you, uh, about the Bible, you pop in the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel is a 2nd century BC biblical apocalypse with a 6th century BC setting. Ostensibly an account of the activities and visions of Daniel, a noble Jew exiled at Babylon. So that is a nice way of saying it was written ex- post facto. It's a 6th century account, but it was written in the 2nd century. So it's, it's a nice way of saying it's a forgery. That's, that's how I look at that. That's Wikipedia, okay? So that's not some obscure critic. That is mainstream. Okay, which I guess we would expect from mainstream because most folks don't believe in the Bible. But that's the base view. Now, in response to that, the critics of the critics, and you won't be able to read that, but the critics of the critics... Um, we have to standardise at some point on aspect ratios in, in uh, Bible talks. But um, where I come from in Cumberland, it's whatever the other one is. Um, but I hope you can read most of it. But the critics of the critics essentially say, listen, we've got the Dead Sea Scrolls, okay? The Dead Sea Scrolls are great because they are, they're kind of a line in the sand, right? That you can't, even the most rabid critic can't push things past the availability of uh, manuscripts in the Dead Sea Scrolls, okay? So in the case of Daniel, you've got this manuscript 4Q Dan C, right? The, the most conservative dating for that, or the, or the latest dating, is about 115, 120 BC, okay? So they say, we know it was around then, absolutely no doubt. That is the absolute latest you could possibly date this book, right? And their, and their counterpoint to the critics is... Uh, so you reckon from about 160... So they dated it about 160, 164, 167 BC. The critics do, right? We don't. It's written like it's written in the 6th century BC, which is what I'm going to suggest you is correct. But the critics say, no, nope, no, nope, about 164, 167 BC. It's a forgery with all due respect. Um, and the critics, the critics say, yeah, but that only means you've got best case about 40 years for this, this book to find its way across all of Jewry as it did and be accepted as canon, as, as inspired scripture, how do you do that when supposedly it was nowhere and then someone pulled it out of the woodwork and said, oh, look, I've uh, got this book by Daniel and it predicts the future. I mean, I, I would think most intelligent people would look at that and go, hmm, 
that's a bit, that's a bit suspect. Uh, and it wouldn't get traction, right? There's, there's lots and lots of books that, 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 where there have been attempts to get them into the canon of scripture. They're called the Apocrypha. They're called the Pseudepigrapha. There's, there's tens and tens of them. And they did not make the cut because they weren't credible. They got thrown out. Daniel, I would suggest Daniel would have got thrown out real quick if that's what happened. But, you know, so I'm on the side of the critics of the critics, as you can probably see. But it just gets you thinking, like, really? Could you really get it out there, accepted by everybody in, in like, a generation and con the whole of Jewry? They were pretty thorough with their checking processes. But, so it makes you start asking questions. So, that, that aside, we'll just look a little bit more at the criticisms. There are broadly two categories of criticism that get levelled at the book of Daniel. Okay, the first one is, if you, these are categories, I'm not going to go through every single criticism, we'll be here all night. Um, but there's historical errors, supposedly, that people suggest that you know, maybe it's, uh, it's, got, it's just wrong, it, it, it doesn't marry up with history. And the second category of inverted commas error is uh, textual criticism. So people look at the language. Daniel's got quite complex language. It's quite unusual in scripture. You've got Aramaic, you've got actually some Greek words and even some Persian words. And so people look at that uh, and, they, and, and the timing of the words. You, you, can, you can date words to some extent, you know, Old English, New English, uh, you know, this sort of thing. Uh, old Greek, same, old, uh, New Greek, Persian, etc. And they, they, they align the timing of the words with you guessed it, the second century BC, right? And, so, and, and pick apart the book on that basis. And so we're going to look at those two things, the, those two themes of criticism, and see if they stack up. Now, in terms of historical errors, I'm going to look at one, one only, okay, because we, we just don't have time. And it is, uh, it is one that has lost its legs uh, in relatively recent history, but it's just fascinating to consider that once upon a time, this was considered an absolute body blow to the book of Daniel. And it is that it refers... Uh, in Daniel 5 verse 1, for instance, it refers to um, a, a Babylonian leader, Belshazzar, the king, the king, made a great feast to a thousand of his lords and so on. You, some of you might be familiar with, with this story. It's a lead into the Babylonian empire being crushed by the Persians in a surprise attack. Okay, but, the, but the criticism has been, this book, this Belshazzar, he doesn't appear anywhere. Nowhere in history, not one archaeological scrap of evidence exists to support the existence of this man. Okay? And there are lists, there are archaeological... Prior to, prior to um, well, the, the 19th century, they have discovered lists of the Babylonian kings. And he is not on it. Okay? So the critics have just said, right, might be a nice book, you can believe it if you want, but we're not believing it because it's got this made-up character in it, right? That's what, that's what happens in storybooks. You don't base your life on something that's claiming to be historically accurate and it's got a made-up guy in it. Okay, so that is the criticism. Of course, the pro problem with that is that... Actually, I'll tell you the problem in a minute. This, the, the other aspect to this problem is that it, it just sort of adds to, it, adds to the problem, if you believe it's a problem. A few verses later... You've got this reference as uh, the king promises, whoever, you know, there's, there's this vision, writing on the wall, a miracle, he's pretty scared. He calls for people to come in and, and make an interpretation and he makes promises, big promises, because he's petrified, that he's going to reward this person and he actually offers them the number three role in the kingdom, which begs another question, which is, when you think about that, which is, okay, but he's desperate, he's scared of this miracle. Why would you offer the number three job? Like, he's, is he not number one? So wouldn't you offer the number two role? 
So this looks a bit odd, right? And it sort of fixes, fits this picture of, oh, maybe this book's a bit kind of made up. You know, not sure I'd base my life on this. So that's Daniel 5, verse 7. And all of that, so this, this was a big, inverted commas, problem. Now, realistically, none of that proves Bible, uh, Daniel is not inspired, right? Just because a character only appears in the book of Daniel doesn't guarantee it's a forgery, right? It just means maybe there's no other evidence, they haven't dug it up, who knows, right? And this is not the first time this has happened. Some of you may be aware. Uh, the, the Hittites, for example, the Bible has been criticised because of lack of evidence of the Hittites, and then they dig up evidence of the Hittites. And I think King David might be another one. Um, this is, and this is what happened with this, right? Lo and behold, in 1881, an archaeologist goes digging and digs up this incredible discovery called the Nabonidus Cylinder. Okay? And you can go and see this. It's, a, it's in the British Museum. Yeah? And the Nabonidus Cylinder has this quote. We're gonna, let's read it together. As for me, Nabonidus, who is recorded, he is on the list of the kings of Babylon, said, save me from sinning against... So this is some sort of prayer he's recorded. Save me from sinning against your great Godhead and grant me... Interesting reference to Godhead. That's another story. Um, and grant me as a present a life long of days. And as for Belshazzar, the eldest son, my offspring, and still reverence for your great Godhead in his heart. Okay? So what does that tell you? Suddenly someone has dug up a completely independent piece of archaeology and lo and behold, there is a Belshazzar. How many people threw their faith out because of these critics saying that, well, it's made up? Right? I don't know. But not a good idea because 1881, they dig it up. Oh, okay. He was real. Oh, hang on. And he's, he's the son of Nabonidus who was the actual uh, the ruler of Babylon. And therefore, you get this picture when you piece all this together of, oh, right, so this, this offering Daniel, as it turned out to be, the, the, the three IC role, the third in charge role, makes sense because he was only the two IC. He was number two. He was not number one. And you get that from, again, you don't need to look at the Bible for that. You can look at independent evidence, which is, in this case, the Nabonidus Cylinder. Okay? But you had to be patient and trust in God. And if, if you live prior to 1881, we don't. And come 1881, that's it. The critics have been blown out of the water. I don't think it necessarily stops them even today raising that criticism about Belshazzar, but you, it's, it's on very thin ice at this point. Okay, so that is one example, very strong argument against the book of Daniel that just did not, did not come out very clean when people kept digging and digging and digging. And as I said before, not the first time that's happened with the Bible. It happened quite a, it's happened quite a few times. You need to be very careful about, oh, but that's, we've never found that anywhere else. It's only in the Bible. Well, the Bible's been vindicated so many times, probably best to give it the benefit of the doubt before we just throw it out because someone hasn't dug up one of the thousands of details that it provides. Right? There are thousands of things recorded in the Bible. Thousands of historical facts are presented. You think that you know, there might be one or two where there's a lack of evidence and it takes time to find it? Yeah, it's, it's, I think that's predictable. Okay? And this is one of them. And the critics ended up with egg on their face. Okay. Now, just, just as we're looking at this, I thought we'll just look at... That's kind of defensive, if you like. I thought we'll just look at a couple of things in the book of Daniel that are more proactive, more um, things that are presented there that are clearly supported in archaeology. So a bit like what we just saw, I guess. But these aren't things the critics are having a go at. They're just interesting details. So um, there is a reference in the book of, uh, book of Daniel. I'm trying to read that. Daniel 4.28. Okay. There is a book reference in it to... Nebuchadnezzar is not presented as a particularly humble leader in the, in the Bible, generally. He was, uh, and 
at one point, you see in this verse, he's kind of boasting about all the things he has built. Right? So he's pretty proud of his construction feats, um, which is understandable, I suppose. You, you look at the, how the archaeologists present the achievements of, of the Babylonians. They were unbelievable, extremely successful, but still not, you know, best not to get proud about it, but he did. Now, what do we find archaeologically? Well, again, as the, as the archaeologists dig around, they just keep finding things that vindicate the Bible. Uh, East India inscriptions, in this case, this is a quote from here that they dug up. By, com- by thy command, merciful Marduk, may the temple I have built endure for all times and be satisfied with its splendour. May, may I be satisfied with its splendour. So he's almost putting himself in the position of God. So this is independent archaeological evidence. Did the ruler of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, boast or have, have a spirit of pride around his building achievements? Yes, he did. The Bible says so. Independent archaeological evidence says the same thing. Another interesting reference, Daniel 5, the writing on the wall, it actually has this sort of, you know, you could call it an obscure detail, but the Bible puts the obscure detail there, that it was on this plaster wall. Okay, why would you, so the walls here are not plastered, what's that, painted, painted vessel block? Yep, um, not plaster. Okay, but the Bible says it was painted on plaster. I think, okay, why would you even include that detail? How is that even relevant? Well, maybe it was relevant because God knew eventually someone would dig the site up and they would discover that, lo and behold, there are plaster walls in, the, in what is expect, suspected to be the throne room of the ruler of Babylon. So they dug it up, they found a tiled section inside what they believe is the throne room, but it says in there, one, one wall was adorned with a design in blue enameled bricks, which might be what you've sort of seen in some of those, um, uh, they've rebuilt elements of uh, Babylon in the British Museum and um, in the Berlin Museum. But it says, one, so you might be more familiar with the sort of fancy designs, but they also, in the throne room, one wall was adorned with blue and drinks, but the others were covered with white plaster, just white plaster. And the, that's what the Bible describes. It says there's this white plastered wall in the throne room. Okay, so again, just the more archaeologists, archaeologists dig things up, the more the Bible gets vindicated, not the opposite, right? Not the opposite. Which it should. It, it should be contradicting the Bible if the Bible is a forgery. If, if it's written ex post facto and it's, it's um, not what it claims to be. Okay, the next source of criticism is textual criticism. Okay? So the book is written in Hebrew, as is the vast majority of the Old Testament. Uh, however, chapter 2, verse 4 to 7, Aramaic. Okay, so that's like a, call it a Mesopotamian language, I suppose. But I'm not a linguistics expert, but it's not Hebrew, it's Aramaic. And there is uh, about four Greek words in there and about 15 Persian words. Okay, so the critics latch onto this and, and basically say they've got different criticisms for each of the three languages that inverted commas shouldn't be there. Uh, broadly, the criticisms are, what are those languages doing there? This is supposedly written by Daniel, a Jew. So why is he, da- why is he dabbling in three other languages apart from Hebrew? And, oh, by the way, when we look at the words, they just don't fit. That, that the timing context doesn't fit. They're, they're new words, new, new as in a couple of a couple hundred years before Christ, um, but it's claiming to be 600 years before Christ. Doesn't add up, right? So that's that's I'm simplifying it, but that's pretty much criticism. So in the case of the Persian, there's 15 words, and yet it doesn't doesn't fit. Now again, archaeology just doesn't help these critics. So the more people dig up, um, dig, dig things up, they find that in actual fact, in actual fact, the the putative, which means basically, if, if the alleged Daniel, this is what putative means, this, this is a quotation from one of these archaeologist types, in Daniel under the Persians, and who briefly served him, so he worked for the Persians, right, would write a book sometime after uh, Cyrus, 
then a series of Persians' words would be no surprise. So basically what, that, what this author is saying is they're saying, if Daniel worked for the Persians, and the Bible says Daniel worked for the Persians after the Babylonians were thrown out, would it be that crazy to think that a couple of Persian words find their way into his vocabulary? Seems quite reasonable, doesn't it? Okay. So why is that so surprising? Why, why do the critics get so worked up about this? It doesn't make sense. Um, and specifically, as they've studied the language more, it actually is revealing the complete opposite to what the critics are saying. So the old, they're, they're finding that these Persian words that Daniel uses are old Persian. So they basically classify Persian into three sort of age brackets. And contrary to what the critics were originally trying to push, they are clearly old Persian. They align perfectly to the 6th century BC timing, not the opposite. So that doesn't add up either. Again, it's just archaeology. It's just people studying things and actually giving things a chance, uh, the facts a chance. Okay, Greek words, it's kind of, on a, it's like rinse, rinse, repeat. It's the same story, same criticism. The Greek ones, the criticism is, it, there's a little bit of a twist which is around, well, hang on, Alexander didn't really strike a fatal blow to the Persians until about 330 BC, so that the Greek Empire didn't really flex its muscles and take over until about then. So it's a bit, you know, a bit silly, but therefore, how could you have Greek words in 6th century BC? As if to say, until Alexander conquered the world, the Greek language didn't exist, which is actually nonsense. Okay? And that's, again, that's what the experts... They look at the experts who are a little bit more open-minded than some of these critics, look at this, and they point out there were Greek uh, slaves in the Babylonian Empire in the 6th, 7th century BC. They were working. They, uh, they brought their musical instruments. And, and the Greek words that are used in Daniel are sackbut, sultry, dulcimer. They're the musical instruments, okay? Musical instruments, the names of them, often transcends languages. And so this is another one. It's just empty. The four Greek words do not prove the book of Daniel is uninspired. It's just, it's, it, it, to me, it shows a level of desperation. Like, you know, somebody is looking. There is an agenda. They are looking to discredit this book. Okay? Um, because that's not exactly rock-solid evidence, is it? And then lucky last, the Aramaic, again, same, same. Uh, basically, they say, look, it's Aramaic. Mm, why wouldn't you just speak Hebrew? Well, because... It's actually been written in that place. Um, and then they say, oh, it's, it's, it's sort of Western Aramaic. It doesn't fit. It's not from that area. Uh, and, and again, what do you think? Second century. It's, it's new. It's new uh, Aramaic. It doesn't work. People study this. And it's, all, it's basically just the same story. Aramaic in the book of Daniel uh, should not be terribly surprising since the predominant language spoken in that period was in Babylon was Aramaic. Okay? Um, Daniel's Aramaic was of... The Western dialect is what they suggest, but what they say is that recent discoveries, so again, archaeology is on the Bible side, it almost always is, um, they date it around the 5th century BC, so pretty close, right? Um, so the second century theory is false. Archaeology says the opposite. It says it's actually quite old. Uh, and what they found is it does appear to be a slightly different Aramaic, which is why they call it this Western Aramaic. But it's not Western Aramaic. It is what they've discovered is Imperial Aramaic. It is like a it's like a High English, like the Queen's English, I suppose we might call it in the vernacular. Okay, so they've discovered that the elite in the Persian Empire spoke an elite form of Aramaic, and that is what is in the Book of Daniel. Is that credible? Daniel was extremely senior in the Bab in the Babylonian and Persian governments. Okay, so yeah, that that's what you would expect him to speak. So it's not some strange Western dialect. It's Imperial Aramaic. Okay? So that's it. That, that, so historical, category one. 
textual, category two, they are these two great sources of criticism of the book of Daniel to claim it is a forgery, to claim it is ex post facto, and that, from what I've seen, that is as good as it gets if you're a critic of the book of Daniel, and it's not very good, okay? But to me, you know, I've got to, be tr I've got to be a bit desperate and looking for an out if I'm going to latch onto that and ignore what appears to be, as we're going to see now, a very accurate prophecy, okay? So if we want to make excuses, we can make excuses. But if we're honest, I think you look at it, do your own research, but you look at the independent evidence, you look at the archaeology, it looks an awful lot like it was written in the 6th century BC before the Persians came in, before the Greeks came in, before the Romans came in. Very accurate prophecy. Okay. So what were the predictions? Well, we've already kind of uh, touched on them. But um, if you come, uh, you're probably in Daniel 2 already. Uh, in Daniel 2? Yeah, so if we're in Daniel 2, let, let's just read Daniel 2 verse 1 and 2. Just to, we didn't read it just then, just to set the context. So um, this is essentially during the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. He has, a, he has this dream, or you might even say nightmare, um, a vision of, a, of a, an image, the one we saw before. And uh, that's how the chapter begins. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed dreams wherewith his spirit was troubled and his sleep broke from him. Then the king's, king commanded rather to call the magicians and the astrologers and the sorcerers and the Chaldeans for to show the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king. So he's pretty scared by this dream. It was evidently quite a vivid dream. And he wants help to interpret it. It's, it's such a shock. It's so vivid. The record is suggesting he, need, he wants help. And so he calls for all these, we would suggest, um, kind of charlatans, the, the, the people from the Babylonian religion who claimed supernatural powers but who didn't have it because, contrary to the challenge we saw in Isaiah, they couldn't actually predict the future. They didn't actually have supernatural powers. They were, they were con artists. Um, but little did he know, he did have someone in his empire who was uh, imbued uh, through God with supernatural power, Daniel. Okay? And that's where Daniel comes in and the story unfolds as Daniel is brought in to interpret this tricky, otherwise impossible, really, vision. And cleverly, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't actually tell them the details of the dream, so he forces them to tell him very clever, because he, you know, what does that suggest? Maybe he, he suspected they were fakes, because he said, no, you tell me, you tell me what the dream was. Very clever. Uh, Daniel could, so then he listens to what Daniel says with regard to interpretation. Otherwise, he could make up anything. Only the, only, uh, the test of time would, would prove whether he was correct or not, and subsequently, it has stood the test of time, the predictions of Daniel. But on the, on the spot, he could have said whatever he wanted, really. Um, okay, so in terms of the key predictions, uh, let's go to verse 32. Um, we did read this, but let's just reread it briefly, get our bearings. Okay, verse 32, 33. There was an image with a head of uh, gold, okay, breast and arms of silver, belly and thighs of brass, legs of iron, and feet part of iron, part of clay. So you are getting a description of, a, and the context tells you this, a sequence of empires. And he literally points out so he, he sort of gives a bit a, a really important clue, actually. Um, not even a clue, it's a, it's, a, it's a starting point. He tells Nebuchadnezzar, look, the, the head of gold, that's you. That is Babylon, okay? So if you want to know where... De if, if we're ever interested in interpreting um, any prophecy, really, ideally we want an anchor point in history. It's the same with the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation talks about things to, uh, to come shortly after. When was the book of Revelation written? Even Wikipedia will tell you, late first century, okay? So if we want to interpret the book of Revelation, start around the late, late first century and looking forward for events. Same with this. We're given an anchor. Babylon, okay? It starts with Babylon. 
and it should be progressively moving from there. We shouldn't be looking backwards 2,000 years, we should be looking forwards to, to aid in interpretation. So Babylon is the first one, he tells us that. Uh, verse 38, you're the head of gold. Uh, and after you will arise another kingdom inferior and another third kingdom of brass, which will bear rule over all the earth, and the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron. Okay, so it, this is a prediction of world empires. That is what this is. And, and he's saying, you are first cab off the rank. And, and what, what is he suggesting by saying that there's going to be a silver empire? He's telling Nebuchadnezzar straight out, you will go. Your empire will go. Okay? Guarantee. Guarantee. The God, the, the, the God, his God, the God of the Bible, says you will go. Um, and that's, of course, what happened to Babylon. Where's Babylon now? They're, they're, they're gone. Um, okay. Now, there is a sister, as I said, I, I call it a sister prophecy in Daniel 7. Which presents any... So if you come across to Daniel 7, perhaps keep something in Daniel 2, uh, this fills out a little bit more detail. Okay. So, because I think part of what we should be looking to do here, especially seeing... This was a long time ago, so it would be reasonable to, to, to look for some level of fulfilment in history. But to look for fulfilment, we know, need to know what to look for. We need to look for clues. And Daniel has given us quite a lot of clues to, so we can identify who these parties are. We know who the gold is, okay, that's a giveaway. But who's the silver? Who, who, who's the belly and thighs of um, brass? Who, who are the legs of iron? And that's kind of interesting. We need to look at the clues. Okay, so Daniel 7 says, um, let, let's look at 7 verse 3. Uh, there are four great beasts that came out of the sea, diverse one from the other. The first was like a lion, okay? And you can, by studying the context, we won't do it tonight. Comparing it to Daniel 2, you can see the four beasts line up with the four sections of the, uh, the image, okay? So the lion aligns with the gold head, the, the Assyrio-Babylonians. I beheld the wings thereof were plucked, and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand up uh, upon the feet as a man, and a man's heart was given to it. Okay, that's the beast, first beast. Then another beast, verse 5, uh, and then uh, like a bear raised up on one side, three ribs in its mouth, uh, and so on. Verse 6, a leopard, so the next, next kingdom, the belly and thighs of brass, is likened to a leopard with four heads. And then uh, verse 7, there's this awful unnamed kind of nondescript beast, it so awfully doesn't want to describe it, which aligns to the legs of iron. Okay. So what I thought we would do is actually look at um, look at what actually happened in terms of the empire. So what happened in history to Babylon? Is Babylon still in power? I've already said no, Babylon was not in power. So what so what did happen? Who did succeed then? Well first of all I just want to backtrack a little bit. Look at the we're just going to focus on the animals, not the metals, because I think we've run out of time otherwise. Um, we'll focus on the characteristics of the animals. And all I really want to do is just show you clues are given, what are the key clues, and how do they align to um, certain empires historically? Can you use them to identify who it was? And I'm going to suggest to you it's actually very easy to identify who is, uh, who is who in this prophecy when you look at history. Again, Babylon, no prizes for that, because once you figure out that the, um, we know the gold head is Babylon, once you figure out that the beasts are lion, well, your, your lion is, is probably going to be Babylon. Is that what we find? Well, yes, you can go to lots of places. You can see these sort of stone reliefs. The Assyro-Babylonian Empire absolutely was symbolised using uh, lions with eagle's wings, that sort of thing. It's a very obvious symbol, very obvious, like now, not just back then. Like you can look at things in the British Museum, uh, things in museums in Berlin, etc., and it's very obvious, okay? That first animal is Babylon, Assyria-Babylonian. Okay. 
the reference to being given the heart of man is a little bit more kind of a, a little less obvious uh, and probably is a reference to the fact that the Assyria Babylonian Empire did it was an evolution from Assyrian to Babylonians the Assyrians were pretty militarized quite brutal uh, I've, I've heard comparisons between the Assyrians and the Nazi regime actually the way they operated a pretty brutal regime whereas that empire as it evolved into the more Babylonian version of it um, was more what we'd call humanistic, I suppose, more peace-oriented, more sophisticated, cultural, that sort of thing. Um, and, and that would probably explain the reference to given a heart of man. They, they evolved into a more compassionate sort of empire as history wore on, as per that quote there. Okay. What about the bear? Okay, so as you look at history, do you see Babylon moved on and there was a successor empire that was analogous to a bear? So if you, if you look at the symbology of history and nations, you'll find that there are, um, there are two nations that are particularly uh, associated with the symbol of the bear. One of them is Russia, which is probably the more familiar one to us. It's a more a modern example. Russia is, you know, you can pick up cartoons uh, in um, newspapers these days and you will see Russia being portrayed as a bear. But Persia is also seen in history portrayed as a bear, okay? So straight away you're thinking, well, don't think Russia really fits back then. Who, you know, who, who knocked off the Babylonians? The Persians did, right? Uh, is a bear a symbol of the Persians? Yes, it is. Um, okay, what, what do the three ribs represent? I've heard a couple of explanations of this. One is that there's a leadership structure, the presence in Persia, which possibly this does align to. Another interpretation is the Persians did wipe out three, uh, three empires, four if you count the Medes, but if you count them as part of them, they took out the Lydians, the Neo-Babylonians, the Egyptians. Are the ribs representative of those conquests? Quite possibly. Are they representative of their presidential system? The three presidents? Possibly as well. Whatever the case, there is a, there is a uh, linkage there to the three ribs. Okay. Alexander the Great. So, what would you associate with the, the animal symbol of a leopard? Right. Just sheer speed. So, as the Persian Empire wore on, did you see an empire come in with which you would associate sheer brutal speed in the way it, it conquered, defeated the Persians, because the Persians were defeated. Well, you do, yeah, because you, when you look at history, you see Alexander the Great came like an absolute bolt of lightning across what we now call Turkey, uh, and within three or four years, uh, there was a battle of um, Granicus, 334 BC, Battle of Issus, 333 BC, and then Guagamela, 331 BC. Massive clash of these armies, a completely outgunned, outnumbered, out everything. Alexander the Great absolutely thrashed the Persians, thrashed them. And he did it fast, very, very fast, just freakishly fast, miraculously fast. And it probably was a miracle because God had predicted it. There's another prophecy in Zechariah 9 which predicts it as well. Okay, it's, it was a highly anticipated event. The conquest of Alexander the Great was predicted in the Bible. It's predicted in Daniel 7. It's predicted in Daniel 2. It's predicted in Zechariah 9. You get a very rich picture that it was, it was telegraphed by God ahead of time and the Persians were always going to lose to a power that is associated with sheer speed, this leopard power. The other aspect of the, um, that I want to focus on out of this prophecy the other aspect of the animal is it had four heads, okay? And what happened after Alexander disappeared off the scene? It, it's lots of theories as to how Alexander died. Um, it's uh, shrouded in mystery. I'm not, I don't have a very strong opinion on how Alexander died, but it, it doesn't appear he died in battle. 
But once he passed off the scene, he had a succession plan, and that was triggered. And those four leaders, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this correctly, but Antigonus, Cassander, Ptolemy, and Seleucus, they stood up. The kingdom was divided in four, exactly as predicted, exactly as Daniel would lead you to expect. History says that's exactly what happened, and, and that was that, and various events rolled on from then. But the key point I want to make is that four-headed animal associated with sheer speed beautifully, beautifully sums up the characteristics of the Greek Empire as it came to be under the leadership of Alexander the Great. Okay, so do we see accurate... Pro I'm not looking at everything. I, I'm not, I, I think for time's sake we won't necessarily look at the Romans. Uh, I won't go into the medals. But in your own time, it is worth doing. You, know, you, you look at those medals and you find a strong association of iron with the Roman Empire. You find a strong association with gold and the Babylonian Empire. You find uh, some very interesting details about the Roman Empire as you start to unpick the, the details that are provided of that, not just in Daniel, but in the extension prophecy, which is the book of Revelation, which is extremely detailed and, I would suggest to you, extremely accurate in terms of how it describes the, um, the evolution and the ultimate destruction and decline of the Roman Empire, it is very, very specifically predicted in the book of Revelation. Okay? And when you pair the two together, Daniel and Revelation, you just get so much coverage in so much detail of so much world history. It is very impressive. And it answers to where we started from, which is you know, that, that challenge of God throwing down the gauntlet to you and to me and to anybody who reckons they or claims they've got some inspired religion or philosophy or whatever the case may be, it answers to that. Can you predict the future in highly specific detail? I can't. I'm pretty confident you can't. Other than if you know how to read this book. If you know how to read this book, you can. Because that is, that is the challenge of God. That is the, that's a thumb. That is the fingerprint of God. Thumbprint of God, if you like, that he has put on this book in order to give us confidence that he is its source. And so when we, when we perhaps wonder, well, I, you know, I wonder if I should pay any attention to the Bible. You know, people say it's just this old book. Should I, would, I, would I really base my life on a book? Is, is that a reasonable thing? Well, if there's no evidence of the fingerprint of God on it, I would say no. But because of... Daniel's just one example. We've just quickly looked at one example tonight, right? But because of Bible prophecy, which runs from end to end in this book, literally from Genesis to Revelation, there is prophecy, okay? And because it is so accurately fulfilled, if we put the effort in, unlike maybe some of those critics, and we go in with an open mind and a bit of humility, we will find this book just adds up. And it is. It is credible. It does have God's fingerprint, and it is a sound basis to, for living our whole life. Okay, so that is the challenge of Bible prophecy. I hope this is just a little example, has given you a taste, and I'd encourage you to go away and have a look at it a bit more in your own time and just get enthusiastic about this amazing book, which, which just, as I've said, it just has God's fingerprint all over it, so why wouldn't we pay attention to it?